Education Matters, a weekly look at the real people and real stories in education across North Carolina. Welcome to Education Matters, presented by the Public School Forum of North Carolina. I'm Keith Poston. Today on the show, we're going to talk about two new education initiatives here in North Carolina. The first is the North Carolina Innovative School District, formerly known as the Achievement School District. The Innovative School District is set to announce a list of low-performing schools later this fall that could be taken over by this new state effort next school year. We have the superintendent up in segment one to discuss. In the second segment, we're going to talk to a teacher and an administrator from Chapel Hill Carborough City Schools. The district was one of six school systems just selected by the state to pilot different ways to pay teachers. You'll want to stick around for that discussion. Before we tackle our main topic, we open with our headlines, a quick scan of education headlines across North Carolina and the U.S. There were some fireworks at last week's State Board of Education meeting, and this time it didn't involve the power struggle between the board and the state superintendent. The new principal pay plan passed by the General Assembly drew some sharp comments about flaws in it, including a case where a principal could make less than an assistant principal at the same school. But the larger concerns voiced were about how the bonus-heavy plan may deter the principals from high-poverty schools because the largest salary bumps rely heavily on student test scores, which tend to lag in those schools. DPI said it will bring stakeholders together to suggest fixes to the General Assembly. Another contentious discussion revolved around the Every Student Succeeds Act, or ESSA, plan that is due to the U.S. Department of Education in September. State board members complained that the draft plan prepared by DPI is too status quo, that was a quote, and that also that the school performance measures that were championed by many teachers had been ignored for a continued heavy reliance on testing. The Charlotte Observer reported this past week about ethics concerns at two Charlotte area charter schools. Thunderbird Prep in Cornelius has asked for permission to turn over operations of the school to a charter management organization, Veritas Charter School Service. The CEO of that company is under investigation by the South Carolina Ethics Commission over possible fiscal mismanagement and ethical conflicts at the school she runs. The other school is Aristotle Prep in Charlotte. They want to hand over its operations to a new charter management company founded by some major players in North Carolina's school choice scene, including a, a member of the North Carolina Charter School Advisory Board. I'll have more to say about that in my final word. After the conflict of issues were raised by a state board member, the proposal was referred to state ethics officials for review. Finally, a new report is out on North Carolina's private school voucher program, the Opportunity Scholarship Program. The report was developed by the Friday Institute at NC State interviewed parents who had received vouchers to send their children to private schools. While parents did express great satisfaction with their new school, they cited difficulty in meeting the financial obligations above the $4,200 voucher which at some schools can be more than $10,000 factoring in transporting their children to the school, buying meals and uniforms, application fees, and activity fees. Private schools participating in the program did report to the Friday Institute that the program has helped them offset operating costs and reduce expenses for students already attending their schools, and the program has been credited with helping reverse years of declining enrollment in the state's private schools. Remember, you can visit the Public School Forum's website at ncforum.org, click on Education Matters, and read more about each of these headlines as well as other topics we cover each week. As I said at the top of the show, we're going to talk about a new education initiative created by the General Assembly last year. It was called the Achievement School District then, now it's known as the Innovative School District. And who better to help us understand what this is all about than the superintendent of that district, Dr. Eric Hall. Eric, thanks so much for being here today. 
Appreciate the opportunity, Keith. All right, so um, uh, you didn't create the uh, uh, Innovative School District. It was created by the General Assembly in 2016, but you were hired this year to run it. So, um, you know, a lot of our viewers, I'm sure, haven't been following this legislation and the plan. So I guess first, just describe for us, what is it? I mean, what is the Innovative School District and what's it gonna do? So as you mentioned, it was created in 2016 by our General Assembly, and ultimately it was designed to help improve some of our lowest performing schools in the state. You know, my job in, in the district, our task is really going in and partnering with schools that are low performing, partnering with communities, and together trying to find some creative, innovative conditions to help drive student outcomes. One of those strategies could include partnering with a charter management organization or an education management organization to partner with one of those schools in that local community for a period of five years under contract and you know, with some high expectations on what we need to do to drive outcomes, but monitoring that contract to ensure that they are being a good partner not only with the local school system, but also with that local community so that we're driving good, strong outcomes for the students in that school. Another strategy is an innovation zone, which is something I'm personally very thrilled about. And we look at uh, some of the you know, other models around the country. You know, Tennessee is one that has come up quite often. We've seen you know, some great outcomes in these innovation zone strategies. It's where you take a group of low-performing schools in a district, you bring them together, almost like a school district within a district. Bringing those schools together, you put a team in place that's gonna support those schools, and together, my hope is that by having that charter management organization in partnership in that local community, that we can go back to some of the original intent of charter schools. How do we share innovation with public schools to drive improved outcomes? Right. You know, in the innovation zone, you know, something that a lot of people don't know, they hear that word, they don't know what that means, it means that not only are we going to bring these schools together to kind of create, again, that district and a district model, we're going to be able to provide them with opportunities to have some flexibility in how they approach their staffing models, their calendar, their bell schedule. And oftentimes our public schools have been so used to doing business a certain way for a long time, our charter partners can hopefully help them understand how do you take advantage of those flexibilities to be innovative and create some right. good opportunities for outcomes. All right, let me ask you, now, and, I, and I, you've, you've mentioned partnering with schools several times, and I understand why you're saying that, but I mean, look, part of the, look, part of the um, concern that some have voiced um, about this legislation that was passed, this isn't about a partnership for the, for the, I mean, the way it was written, this is about hiring a charter management organization to take over and run that school, right? And, and I mean, it was modeled after Tennessee's Achievement School District, um, you know, where, you know, I mean, I think it's fair to say, and you can dispute it, that if you'd like, um, that the results have been mixed. I mean, they, they launched in 2011. The stated goal at that time was to move the bottom 5% of schools in Tennessee to the top 25% of the schools. Um, to date, none of the schools that, that were part of the initial have moved out of the bottom. And I mean, so I guess the question that, I, that people mentioned to me is, why would we bring that to North Carolina if it's already not working somewhere else? Well, I think it depends on how you define working. You know, when we look at schools across the state and even in other states that have tried these models, when you have two, sometimes three kids out of every 10 in a school that are proficient in reading, meaning that seven to eight students are not proficient out of every 10, that means we gotta do something different. You know, some of those schools have a history of some of those performance challenges, and it's not about blaming, it's not about saying that, you know, staff aren't doing their best, but it's saying it's time to try something new. And when you look at the outcomes, particularly in the Tennessee model, the innovation zone had great outcomes that were you know, not there before the ASD was created. Some mm -hmm. would say that it created urgency. Right. And urgency to me helps to drive change. Right. If we see that there is an opportunity to do something different, then I think we have a moral and ethical obligation when we look at that data to say that again, are we comfortable as a state? Are we comfortable as a community to say that it's okay to have two to three students out of every 10 proficient in reading? 
I think it's worth you know saying we need to change that, the conversation. And that, the whole, and that was the whole point of the, uh, uh, this whole effort was really we have too many schools where too many kids are not achieving. I mean, and I think that is absolutely the right um, goal. Um, you know, but to, you know, to that end, you know, talking about the achievement school district again, one of the things that I know you've talked about, and I've, I've seen some other interviews, is, is community engagement and parental absolutely. involvement. Another knock. Again, on Tennessee, we were only looking at what this was modeled after was that the that parents weren't involved, the, the charter operators came in, basically fired the principal and all the teachers, and they really didn't have a say in what was going on in their school. Is that going to happen here? I think in this case, I'm really excited about the way our legislation has been written. You know, we do get compared to Tennessee quite often. If you look at Tennessee, the way their legislation was written, it was a deep dive and realistically a single community at that point, which was Memphis. Right. Several schools in Memphis were transferred over to the ASD for operation. If you look at our legislation, we are going in and we are limited to only one school in a single community. And it, that means an LEA or a local school district, we would only look at one school. We're limited to that, which is a good strategy to me because that's an injection point to then create the innovation zone and drive those partnerships so that we do bring the community into that conversation. So how many schools are gonna be involved initially? So we are required to have no fewer than two in the first year in the legislation. And that's what I really wanna to stick to. Okay. We have an obligation to really do this well. We have an opportunity to learn from states like Tennessee and others, even Louisiana, where they have tried similar strategies. What is it that's worked well and what hasn't? Right. That's what makes this, to me, an innovative opportunity. As you mentioned earlier, it was once called the Achievement School District. We said this really, if you look at the legislation, it's not the same as Tennessee. This is something that we have an opportunity to take the legislation, but the legislation creates the parameters. The people can create the vision for what this can be in North Carolina, and that's why I use the term partnership. Because if we're working with the community and we're looking at the needs of the whole child, then we can start lining up resources in a way that I hope empower those communities to do well, great things. After the schools are selected, and of course after you get going, um, we definitely want to have you come back on, and we're, we're going to talk about it and see how you're doing with it. So look, we appreciate you coming on the show today and answering some questions about it. I look forward to watching what happens. Keith, I appreciate the opportunity. Always glad to be here with you. Thank Thanks, you. Eric. All right, when we come back, we're going to learn about a new teacher pay program underway in Chapel Hill Carborough City Schools. But first, see if you can answer this question. What percentage of classroom supplies are purchased by teachers themselves? Welcome back to Education Matters. Did you correctly answer D? According to Education Week, two-thirds of all classroom supplies are purchased by the teachers themselves. Maybe that's why the governor was out doing a roadshow this week asking people to donate school supplies. Last week, the State Board of Education approved a plan to provide up to $10.2 million over the next three years to six school systems to test alternative models for paying teachers. The counties are Chapel Hill Carborough, Charlotte Mecklenburg, Edgecombe, Pitt, Vance, and Washington County school systems. Today, we're gonna to hear from one of those, Chapel Hill Carborough, about what they are doing, and we are honored to have uh, two great guests from the schools. We have, uh, here we have uh, Courtney Sears. Courtney is a teacher at Ephesus Elementary in Chapel Hill. Ephesus, I got that right. Um, and Dr. Philip Holmes. Dr. Holmes is the director of Project Advance, which you're gonna learn what Project Advance is on the show today. Now. The districts selected are using different options to differentiate pay for teachers. I mean, this is really, it's really about differentiating pay for teachers and it's, and they're, they cover the waterfront, but it's, it's everything from taking on advanced leadership positions in the school to measuring school performance to see, you know, how the teachers are doing. 
Tell me about Project Advance. What is your approach? How does it work? Sure. Thanks, Keith. Um, Project Advance is a differentiated pay scale that's based on teachers uh, moving up through levels of professional learning. Um, what we try and do is base the differentiation of pay based on the knowledge and skills that teachers gain throughout their career. And so there are four levels. Um, everyone comes in at what we call the learn level. Uh, they work towards completing the learn level. At that point, they would move up to the grow level and receive a salary differential increase. Once they receive that increase, that increases into their salary for the remainder of their career with the Chapel Hill Carver City Schools. And they have the opportunity to move through four levels uh, throughout the course of their career. Now, is it just for, is it just for beginning teachers to, to start out as, they, as they're becoming new to the profession? Um, no, it's actually, uh, when we implemented, we began our first year of implementation this year, we implemented with almost all of our certified staff. There are a okay. few position types, such as athletic directors and occupational therapists and physical therapists that are not part of the program. But all of our certified staff are part of the program. Right. All right, well, speaking of certified teachers, Courtney Sears, I always like that when I have a teacher on, thank you thank for you what for you do me. every day for our kids. We appreciate you. My pleasure. Um, so do you think this program is attractive, will be attractive to, to more teachers um, uh, in Chapel Hill? I think so. Um, there are two issues with pay in North Carolina. One of them is that teachers are underpaid, but the other issue is that there's not a career ladder for teachers. So I'll be starting my 19th year of teaching in the fall, and I've had the same title for the entire 19 years, even though I've grown as a teacher, my practice has improved, and I've taken on additional leadership roles at the school and in the state. And so what Project Advance really gets at is how do we differentiate pay for teachers as leaders, as mentors, as people who contribute to the school without leaving the classroom. That's, right. that's where I love to be. Which is because that's where you want to be. And that's, yeah. and, and, and that's where North Carolina wants you to be. We want you to be, and I mean, we want our best teachers in the classroom, but I mean, but teachers like any other profession, you're looking for, uh, you know, uh, professional development and advancement, uh, opportunities to earn more money. So I mean, these things are, I guess, built into this project. They are, and what's appealing about Project Advance is that it really um, allows every teacher to grow professionally and to take a personalized approach. So um, while there are some courses and some types of professional development that we all do as a staff, there are other things that we can do that appeal to our unique interests, our strengths, and areas that we want to improve in. Right. Well, Dr. Holmes, I think uh, you've got a, um, a good salesperson here to go talk to some other teachers about this program. <laughs> Absolutely. Let me, now, how were the comp components selected? I was interested in this. Um, data literacy, content, instruction, and diverse, diversity, diverse populations. Yes, yeah, so there are four core competencies, and all of our professional learning will fall into those four core competencies. Those competencies were selected because they both align with our long-range plan and the goals we have for all of our students in our district, and because they align to the teacher evaluation. Um, and so each of our core competencies can be driven back to one or more standards in the teacher evaluation and one or more goals within our long-range plan. Now, um, this is this just started, so it's about a year old, mm -hmm. right? Um, this, you know, you're obviously congratulations on being selected for Thank the you. additional state money. I know it's mm -hmm. helpful, um, but I mean, one of the questions about programs like this is: it sustainable without additional state support? I mean, look, the the, the landscape is littered with programs that were funded by you know grants and mm -hmm. federal, state, whatever, that then just disappear. Can this work without additional investment? 
our modeling, when we've been planning for two years, and in our modeling, um, we do have a sustainability within the local dollars available to us using money we currently use to pay local supplements. Okay. Um, as we transition um, from our old model local supplement, which had increases throughout a career based on years of experience, and we transition to a base rate, which is higher than the old base rate, and then the increases in local supplement are based on salary differential. Right. Our current employees are actually eligible for both. Right. Um, they can get the higher um, s local supplement based on years of experience and also qualify for the salary differential. And so of course, Chapel Hill, Chapel, I mean, look, I mean, I think it's, I mean, we've talked about on the show about school funding, like mm -hmm. Chapel Hill Carver is blessed. It does, I mean, you do have more resources available locally because of property taxes and the way Absolutely. we fund schools in North Carolina. So I think one of the questions that, you know, I've certainly raised with other guests on the show is, the our poor rural counties. Mm -hmm. I mean, the other counties that I looked on the list. I mean, like Edgecombe. I mean, these these mm -hmm. are not. They don't have the the property base, which is where the supplemental funds come from. They, they don't come from the state. They right. come from from taxpayers in your county. Well, I think one of the reasons why it's really important for Chapel Hill Carborough for our district to be out in front with this is because we did we do have the ability to set up the structures using our local resources that we are very lucky to have and very thankful to our local community for support for providing. But what that can do is then once we set up a structure and a pilot system, the numbers may be different, the salary numbers may be different in an Edgecombe County or a Washington County or any county across the state. But the, once we set up the structure, we can share those structures. Much of our professional learning is now available on Canvas, which is an online learning management system that most districts in the state have adopted. And we could actually share our professional learning courses across the state if there were others who were implementing serious, similar and, programs. And that's why these are, that's why the legislature wanted these as pilots to see if it's Absolutely. scalable. I'm going to give you the last comment, Courtney. Um, professional development, how important are things like this to teachers? I mean, I've, I, I believe our professional development budget for the state has been virtually zero for about five years now. I mean, how critical is this as a teacher? Professional development is what makes me grow as a teacher and what makes me more effective in the classroom. Um, in school, we talk about educating the whole child, and I think what Project Advance does by looking at professional development and tying that to pay differentials is it looks at the whole teacher. It doesn't look at thin data, which for me as a second grade teacher might just be reading scores, even though my job is so much more. It looks at a body of work that I've done as an educator, the choices that I've made, the growth that I've decided to make, and invest in that, knowing that that's what's going to give payoffs in the classroom, and that's what's going to make a big impact on children and their learning. And make you a more effective teacher. I mean, yeah. that's, in, in that's one of the reasons why I invited um, the two of you on the show today is because I looked at all the other programs and yours was really unique. It stood out because it really is about professional learning. It's not, it's not about sort of creating sort of new structures or, you know, uh, teachers and paraprofessionals. Right. It's about investing in, in learning for teachers. So. Yes. Well, look, we appreciate both of you coming on and talking to about the show. We're really excited to see how this uh, goes. Uh, hopefully the state can learn more about it and uh, continue to invest in great teachers like you. Thank, Thank you, you so much for being here. After the break, this week's Leadership Spotlight. Each week, Education Matters spotlights individuals demonstrating exceptional leadership in education in North Carolina based on nominations from you. This week, we spotlight Erica Emil and Stacy Daniels at Austin Ridge Elementary in Fuquay, Verena. 
Our school does very well with proficiency, but we want for all of our students, from our high students to our students who need a little more support, we want them all to grow. Meeting the children where they are, at their particular levels, wherever they are, because they're all individuals, each child needs to be reached where they are and grow from there. Um, the teachers are able to do that in their classrooms with support from staff. People are starting to begin to tiptoe into things such as tiered lessons and the feedback we've gotten has been amazing. The tasks are more meaningful because they're tiered and they're on their level and they get to do something that's exciting to them at a level that's approachable for them. And then the student engagement and the excitement that you see when you go into classes now is a whole new way of learning and instructing, the teacher sort of stands back and lets the kids have a hands-on experience, a real-world learning experience. This is what differentiation is, and you see the growth in individual kids and in classes, so it's exciting, and we're just at the very beginning, so we look forward to seeing where we're gonna go. If you know someone or a program that deserves to be recognized, please visit our website, ncforum.org, and click on Education Matters, and scroll down, you'll find a link to nominate someone in your community. After the break, this week's final word. One of the stories I shared during the Edline segment at the top of the show came from some excellent reporting by Ann Helms at the Charlotte Observer. It was about ethics concerns at two Charlotte area charter schools, Thunderbird Prep and Aristotle Prep. I want to focus on Aristotle. Aristotle Prep has asked the state to allow a newly created management company to take over its operations. The company is called Achievement for All Children. That group has no track record of running any schools and no other company was invited to bid for the job. So what did it have going for it? Well, one thing, a very well-connected group of founders. Its CEO is Tony Helton, who is also CEO of the Team CFA Foundation, part of a national charter school network that backs charters. He also happens to sit on the state's charter school advisory board. The other founders? Daryl Allison, president of Parents for Educational Freedom, the state's leading advocacy group for private school vouchers. Rob Bryan, former GOP state representative and the architect of the Achievement School District legislation we just discussed. And Philip Byers, president of Challenge Foundation Properties, a sister company of Team CFA that works with charter schools on their properties and facilities. Now their new company is seeking a contract to run Aristotle Prep in exchange for a five to 10% cut of the state funds that flow to the school. Now that plan was approved by a committee on the Charter School Advisory Board and was headed for approval until a single state board member, Gregory Alcorn, voiced concerns. Action was then deferred until further review by state ethics officials. Now, is there anything inappropriate going on here? Not sure. It's certainly not the five to 10% cut of school funds. That's actually industry standard for these for-profit charter companies that are making up a growing share of North Carolina's charter schools. But the state board was right to pump the brakes, particularly since the Charter School Advisory Board today looks more and more like a charter school trade association when you look at its members than a true oversight body as it was created. Now, 
The public school forum of North Carolina that I lead was an early supporter of charters back in 1996 when legislation created the first charter schools in North Carolina. They were billed at the time as laboratories of innovation to help improve all schools. And from a personal perspective, I've shared before on the show, my daughter attended a charter middle school here in Raleigh, and we had an excellent experience. But the rapid charter growth fueled by friendly legislation and minimal oversight does give me pause. Something just doesn't feel right here. So let's be cautious. If not, one day we may look back on this time period as the moment North Carolina's charter school train jumped the track. That's it for this week's show. We're off next week, but we'll be back August 26th with a brand new show featuring an interview with UNC President Margaret Spellings. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you soon.